Yes, and we are ready to go. Okay. One, two, three. So, uh, welcome everybody. This is the first podcast of 2020, uh, Pangea Wire. We have as our first guest today, Oliver Cooper. I've uh, met Oliver once before, Olivia, sorry, once before. <laughs> and uh, uh, very interesting character. She's a specialist in private wealth and family office with Harrison Clark Rickabees. And we're here to talk about all things geopolitics, all things coronavirus, <laughs> Brexit probably, and why uh, 007 loves Aston Martins. <laughs> so A good choice of, of topics there. Really exactly. quite wide, wide topic exactly, choice there. Exactly. So Olivia, tell me, a day in the life of a family office lawyer, what does that look like? Oh gosh, um, I, I loathe when people ask me that because it is very different. It, it really, there is no such thing as an average day yeah. um, because when you are um, looking at family offices, you are very much a, a key figure for uh, your clients yeah. and really they are, they can it can be anything coming in so it might be a potential uh, divorce coming in or family problems or you're looking at somebody who's looking a family that's looking to set up a family office mm-hmm. which is one of my my specialities and they're querying how do they go about it what is it what do they need what do they need to know what does it do for them? Uh, what exactly is a family office? Very often is a question I'm asked numerous times. So educating people about the process. E- educating people about the process, but also actually taking on uh, that, that not just that inquiry, but also taking them step by step mm-hmm. through how you set up a family office mm-hmm. and what types of family office there are, because there isn't a, a one a one uh, one size fits all mm-hmm. approach uh, in family office. For example, there is the famous saying that once you've seen one family office, you've seen one family office, and mm-hmm. that's very much true. And especially now with technology, we're looking far more into the virtual family office as well, mm-hmm. which is opening up the whole concept of structuring a family office to a much wider audience yeah. um, and to a much wider client base, where it was originally just for the uh, ultra wealthy, the ultra uh, high net worth mm-hmm. client. Mm-hmm. Now you're seeing uh, because of, as I said, this uh, concept of the uh, virtual family office, virtual single family office, mm-hmm. you're seeing it, this con- this structuring of family office opening up to mm-hmm. uh, the high net worth clients as well. Okay. But it's a big step between what you were before, you were trained as a ballet dancer, you said before? <laughs> no, I... Tr- I th- how did that work? <laughs> no, I've always been in law, but I I, I was classically ballet trained, okay. yes. Um, and I can still pirouette, Very and I can well. still do fu- fouette turns, and I still have point shoes in, well, not in my bag here, but I still, uh, I'm still a big follower of ballet, yes, I still love it. Very good. Um, and it keeps me fit, so that's great. Do you go to the ballet often? <laughs> I do. When was the last um, time you went? Oh gosh! Uh, now, now you're putting me on the spot. <laughs> uh, lo- well, the last performance I saw was Sleeping Beauty. Uh, that was the Royal Ballet, uh, Covent Garden. Yeah. Um, fantastic ballet company, fantastic production. Uh, I follow ballet around the world. Uh, it's been a passion for all my life. Um, I, I've, w- am I disappointed that I never made it to the stage myself? Well, of course. I think every every girl who's ever studied ballet would say the same. Sure. Um, but that's one of my passions. But it, it I enjoy it, and um, certainly, yes. I w- do. I wish I was Marianella Nunes as dancing uh, on on the stage at Covent Garden. Of course, I do. But uh, I still love being my uh, being a lawyer. Very it's good. it's a very interesting job. Sure. I think we should tell everyone the first time we met was at a family office summit in London last year, late last year. Mm-hmm. 
where Olivia was speaking about investing mm -hmm. and I was speaking about uh, how Brexit will affect the real estate market. Mm -hmm. But we had a very interesting conversation afterwards about all kinds of topics. And you mentioned... Uh, but do you remember, actually, we were talking about, both of us agreed, and we were the only people at that conference who were talking about geopolitical risk that's strategy right. You're right, you're right. as an overall part of investment strategy for yeah. not just family offices, but a general um, investment strategy that you needed to have an element of an understanding of geopolitical that's risk. Right. And I mentioned one of my top risks being global pandemic. That's right. I and do you remember the derisory remarks that followed? I wonder what those people are saying exactly, now, don't you? Exactly. I was right. Yeah, you're right there. It was a big thing that you mentioned. You mentioned that would, if something like this were to come along, it was only a matter of time, you said. Mm -hmm. So how do you assess the coronavirus and its impacts on the... It's a big topic. It's a big question to say, how do you assess it on the global economy? But what can you get into the specifics about it? Well... Uh, we've been, firstly, I, I do want to underline that um, I'm not laughing at this. Uh, people are dying of this uh, mm. virus, it, coronavirus or COVID-19, as mm. we're supposed to call it now. It, it's quite it's it's killing people. Mm -hmm. uh, so we don't want to I, I don't want to talk about the mortality rates. Uh, and obviously, that's a very serious issue. But when we're looking at the economic impact, uh, we have to start taking this very seriously because it's not something that's going to just affect the short term. We are going to see the effects of the coronavirus economically impacting on our economy, on the global economy, not just in the short term, but in the medium and long term as well. Mm -hmm. um, just today, for example, on the news from uh, the latest news coming out of China uh, in the sudden up, uh, sudden jump in not just ca reported cases of coronavirus, but in the in the deaths from coronavirus. That has sent the FTSE into shock. It's sent the global markets into shock. But the FTSE opened 65 points lower this morning mm -hmm. um, because of the trading on the Asian markets. But why was that? Because China has come out with yet more data and changed the way in which it is actually uh, now uh, diagnosing mm -hmm. uh, the diagnostic tests for coronavirus. The impact of that has had shock waves across the global markets, not just China. And this is what I think people have to, have to comprehend, that there is no such thing as a closed market anymore. Um, what Something will happen in one country will have an impact on our, not on the global economy and on our own home economy. They're very connected. Everything's connected. Everything's exactly. The glo globalization, there you go. Mm -hmm. Everything is connected. And the long-term effect of coronavirus is... It, it, we are, it's too early at this moment to be able to actually put a financial cost on it. Mm. We are seeing figures coming out. And certainly, um, as I said, I don't want to downplay the fact that people have died from it. But uh, from an economic point of view, uh, we're looking at ju just uh, um, in this first quarter, probably two. Uh, some of the figures I've seen are looking at a two percentage point drop mm. in growth in the Chinese uh, market, in the Chinese economy. That's equivalent of a 60, uh, $62.8 million loss in growth. Billion or million? Uh, sorry, sorry, billion. Billion. Uh, 62. So it, that, that's, that's a serious slice uh, off, uh, of growth. Mm -hmm. um, so it, this is just on the Chinese economy. Mm -hmm. uh, the Chinese economy was already in a fluctuating state. Uh, it, it, it can't afford to keep this long term. We saw already the impact of the uh, trade war with the US. So China's had a number of problems. 
the impact of that worldwide is is something that we can't yet fully uh, measure financially. So the fact that Tesla closed its factory, I mean, not just Tesla, a number of uh, companies have closed their factories mm. in China. Be it a temporary closure, it has an economic cost. Uh, Apple suffered uh, its supply chain to be cut off right. from uh, Wuhan. Mitsubishi. Mitsubishi also stopped Mitsubishi. part of their production in China. They had to freeze. Exactly. Factories are closing. But this is the point that what I'm saying, the multinationals, China uh, went from being quite a closed environment, a closed economy, mm -hmm. to having uh, over time has developed cross-border links. And certainly the multinationals have moved into the Chinese market. So we're not just in the automotive industry, but in pharmaceuticals, mm -hmm. in biotech. And of course, the fact that now China is once again closed off to us, to, for albeit we don't know for how long even, um, is going to have a long-term economic impact because we're not just uh, disrupting supply chains. Mm -hmm. We're looking at uh, actual uh, impact to companies mm -hmm. uh, in, 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 their, in their balance sheets. Right. Sorry, so you were about I to say. say in, in terms of these are big conglomerates, they move a lot slower than sort of an agile family office. Do you think family office interests, they can move more faster more quickly, they are more flexible in pulling out their money. Are they more liquid than other kinds of entities? Well, certainly we have seen um, on the worry on the worrying front, people in because family offices are concerned with what is going on in the global uh, economy. We have seen an awful lot of uh, stockpiling of cash mm -hmm. uh, in in a way that they are looking for the next big opportunity to invest. Uh, they haven't found it yet, mm -hmm. and certainly they are that trend is continuing, the stockpiling of cash, which is a worry, it is a concern. Um, but as I said, this uh, this uh, coronavirus, um, the long-term impact, we can't yet actually fully uh, measure it uh, financially. But I mean, just to say, uh, look at OPEC slashing its uh, forecast for global oil demand, mm -hmm. uh, Germany, the impact on the German economy, which is already going into a technical recession. Mm. Uh, we're seeing a 0.2 uh, uh, percentage points off German GDP for the mm. three months up to March. Mm. That could push it into a technical recession. Again, and as we were uh, uh, discussing earlier, with the news coming out of the European Union, as in uh, from, from the UK leaving, who's going to pick up the tab mm. of... Uh, basically contributions, Germany will have a higher contribution as it goes into technical recession. Mm -hmm. Not a good them. place to be. Not a good place to be. You're right there. Uh, You're so right there. this is, these are all the, it's because coronavirus is, yes, we're looking at the long-term economic impact, mm -hmm. but it's what, and it will have certainly an impact, but it's one thing of many events that could possibly impact mm -hmm. on the global economy. You can't just segregate everything into little boxes mm -hmm. you have to look at the whole As picture whole, yeah. um, and it is a serious concern and are some family offices from different parts of the world doing better than others in anticipating and maybe keeping their money safe for perhaps maybe asian family offices because they're in the mix, they can see it better as opposed to maybe Western family offices, and they're making better mm. decisions. No, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say that's that that, that at all. Um, I I think the the family offices that will survive the best are those that move quickest, mm -hmm. have a much better strategy in terms of looking at global risk and seeing that because up to up to a certain point, what we've been seeing is that 
risk analysis has been attached to individual investments mm -hmm. rather than having an overall strategy and an overall understanding of the global economy mm -hmm. and the risks that it faces, uh, they have attached risk strategy to each individual uh, investment. So they haven't been able to piece the, the whole picture together. Mm -hmm. Family offices that have had that overall strategy, that have seen uh, have seen this problem arising, mm -hmm. will move quicker and be able to mm -hmm. uh, adjust mm -hmm. uh, quicker. I don't think necessarily that uh, family offices move quicker than uh, multinationals. No? I think multinationals have moved quite quickly mm -hmm. to try and stem the uh, economic possible crisis that will come out of this virus and the spread of it. But as we've seen... The main problem uh, with it is also been the fact that people have very little uh, understanding of uh, or rather faith in the information that's coming out mm -hmm. from the Chinese government. Mm -hmm. People are naturally mistrusting what has been said because China has been very reticent in giving out information. Mm -hmm. And now suddenly we have this news that where we thought it was plateauing and, and the number of cases was actually plateauing, mm -hmm. suddenly we've had a huge hike. Yeah. Um, and suddenly they're changing how they're diagnosing mm -hmm. coronavirus. And so that's caused a panic. And yet again, people are feeling that mistrust towards the so-called uh, official uh, information coming out of mm -hmm. China. And that will have a long-term impact also on whether or not companies again look to China for investment um, as, a, as a potential uh, area of investment, mm -hmm. uh, as a marketplace, mm -hmm. because once again, that mistrust enters mm -hmm. the marketplace, mm -hmm. which, is, mm -hmm. which is worrying. Well, China has made it very difficult for Western companies to really penetrate the market anyway. You know, the issues with IP as well. Yes. And just a lack of uh, integration into the Chinese market. Yes. So why would this make it any different? Well, well, China is very defensive in, in the first place. The Chinese, yes, Chinese have been... circle for me. So, square the circle. Chinese, the Chinese uh, government certainly has been very reticent in, um, and it's a naturally a, it has been a closed market. But we have seen in in year in in the last few years, China coming forward as a place of investment, regardless of uh, the problems with, uh, shall we say, the closed uh, variety, the closed. Uh, um, type of government, mm -hmm. the fact it's a communist regime. Mm -hmm. We have seen uh, an opening up of mm -hmm. China, which is why we've seen a huge amount of mm -hmm. multinationals from high-scale luxury retailers, mm -hmm. automotive industry, pharmaceuticals, as I mentioned, biotech. They're all manufacturing within um, the Chinese market. And that factor that now we have basically closed China off again, because mm -hmm. as you've seen, we, you know, we're you yeah. no longer flying to China. Yeah. The major uh, airliners uh, have stopped, uh, have stopped uh, contact with China. China. So we've basically closed the door once China. again. China. It's going to be quite hard China. when those doors reopen yeah. for even business faith to come back. Because really? I think, yes, because, because we've been... It takes time to build relationships. And certainly in, in China, it's taken time to build relationships. And it's going to have um, quite a negative impact because of the way it's been handled, I think, by the, by the Chinese government. And that mistrust is creeping back in again. Do you think things like tourism in countries which rely on Chinese tourists will have a... I mean, obviously now, as you mentioned, flights have been cut mm -hmm. off. So all the places where Chinese tourists would go, they're lacking that income. Mm -hmm. But as hopefully coronavirus 
you know, settles down, if you want to call it. Hopefully the Chinese government contain it more or the world comes together to make sure it doesn't spread more. What happens afterwards? These nations that, or these countries or these resorts or these tourist spots where they rely on Chinese investment, They'll be very happy to have them back, but will there be something in the back of their mind socially that makes them a bit more cautious of them? Um, I, I wouldn't say, I mean, yes, we have seen reports uh, and it's dreadful of um, people, uh, not just here in the UK, but uh, in Europe and in the States, uh, they, they won't go to a Chinese restaurant mm. because they're afraid of catching coronavirus. You're, I was in Chinatown only yesterday, before yesterday. It it's was, a desert. It was, it was a desert, yeah, for sure. Yes. For sure. Uh, of course, because people, and that's what I'm talking about, long-term economic impact and medium-term well. impact, because it's not just the actual disease, but it's people's perception of it. Right. So people's perception of how of their ability to catch this disease will affect uh, will affect their behavior patterns and that in turn will have the economic impact mm -hmm. so if you're not going to go out to an event uh, because you're afraid of catching this mm -hmm. horrible virus mm -hmm. because you think you're going to die mm -hmm. from it um, then of course people who organize those events are, are, are going to be in trouble because yeah. it's going to have an economic impact N visitor numbers yeah. are down yeah. um, but just going back to 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 what you said about tourism it's not just tourism we have to be worried about. We have to also think about long-term economic impact with movement of people. So, for example, just to give you this example, UK, UK uh, education establishments had the highest number this year of applications from Chinese students. Yeah. Now, if those Chinese students can't come across to the UK to study, it's not just the universities and the schools that are going to It'll suffer. connected to it. Well, exactly. Everything connected to it. So the student accommodation, the people who provide student accommodation, the, the restaurants, the bars, right. the, 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 even the booksellers. You know, this is all going to impact yeah. uh, economically on our own yeah. home economy. Yeah. So it, this is what I mean about medium long term impact. And coronavirus, I must say, uh, and I'm not wishing to cause panic, it's not going to go away anywhere mm. Anytime in, soon. Anytime soon. I'm, I'm very sorry to say it yeah. is. It hasn't plateaued. I think you're right in the sense that when SARS was a big thing, the Chinese economy mm. wasn't as integrated as, as it is now. Exactly. So we find shocks all over the place mm -hmm. because the Chinese economy is so primal. Well, this is the, the point. Economy. This is it. It's. It, it, this is what I, I was explaining. That as China has opened up, and mm. as we have seen much more of a, of a cross border mm. with China, so the integration of the Chinese economy, economy into the global economy, you are seeing now the impact of that because as we close China off, mm -hmm. that has a knock-on effect. Even the, So, for example, in Australia, the, the knock-on effect on the fish industry mm -hmm. there uh, has been uh, appalling because, of course, China was one of their biggest markets for live fish um, exports. So, so, so what lessons can businesses learn from this? Is it not to be over-dependent on one economy? Is it to diversify their uh, their uh, their uh, income and, and, and outgoings? Like what lessons can countries and big business, small business, family offices learn? Is it to be more agile? Is it to put less... Ch uh, le less uh, Less uh, hens in one, or less chickens in one basket. Not to put all your eggs, eggs in, one in one basket. basket. That's, right. That's how you say it. That's right. <laughs> uh, is it to diversify? Is diversification key? What is it? Well, yes. Um, obviously, uh, supply chains are, are crucial uh, in manufacturing, uh, um, and so therefore uh, we have to look at companies will now have to re re-examine where they got it wrong mm -hmm. and where they need to plan ahead. Mm -hmm. And certainly, yes, 
diversification is one of one of the keys. But I don't think you can say that we can just sort of close China off altogether now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's and it's we're never going to go back to there because we just simply don't trust them. I don't think that's the the reaction. I think what we're going to see is business will be much more aware mm-hmm. of how something that seemed to be starting off as, as simply a flu virus, mm-hmm. um, very much on an avian mm-hmm. flu style, mm-hmm. suddenly has exploded into something much more serious, which is having a much more long-term impact. So they need to react much mm-hmm. quicker. Mm-hmm. They need to be able to swap supply mm-hmm. chains far faster, mm-hmm. and they need to have a backup. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly... That that's what we'll what, what I I will I believe that we will be seeing now mm-hmm. in the analysis to come. At the moment, of course, it's reaction now. Yeah. Uh, companies are are it's moving defensive, as it, it, offensive. exactly. Once the actual once this uh, virus has uh, rescinded, we will then be able to analyze not only the economic impact but where mm-hmm. we go from there, yeah. how we stop it happening yeah. in the future. Yeah. We're never going to stop the spread of global disease. Uh, we had the plague. We've had uh, bubonic plague. Mm-hmm. We've had uh, the ill-named Spanish flu yeah. epidemic. Mad cow disease. All, all <laughs> You're never going to stop uh, a global spread of a disease. Yeah. It, 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 man can't, uh, is, is not God. They're never going to stop that. And it's certainly because the world has become a smaller place, we travel more, more people travel, it's certainly going to be a question that this is not something that's going to go away mm. and it's certainly not going to end with coronavirus. Mm. So it is, as I've said right from the beginning, mm. something that we need to factor in. Mm. So looking at our supply chains, are we too heavily reliant on one particular, as you said, on one particular chain mm. If something was to go wrong there, how do we move it? And I think technology coming forward, this is also going to offer an opportunity because, yes, the dreadful um, uh, fallout, economic fallout from the coronavirus is we are going to see bankruptcies. We mm. are going to see companies going bankrupt. and But we're also going to see change of ownership of tech, of mm. uh, IP, mm. and we're going to see technology coming forward into that vacuum. And so mm. there is a, uh, an area of opportunity mm. Uh, there as well. Dare I say it, I hate to, hate to say it because of course people are dying and I am quite aware of the horror of that. But there is also going to be an area of opportunity for change yeah. um, and that that's where it's going to be, looking at how we make our supply chains more fluid and sure. how we proof them against this uh, potential, not just of coronavirus, but of any uh, large economic shock mm. hitting in one particular area, hitting the global economy, mm. how we minimize the impact mm, very good moving on i think coronavirus is we can honestly i think from the information that we've spoken about today we can speak about it for days on end <laughs> uh, but there are other topics which you wanted to talk about and one of the things i found interesting that we spoke on on length when we were even at the bar afterwards we went to we went to the, the members club afterwards and we spoke <laughs> all the drinks that all we had to be stuck on geopolitical risk we were, we were funny then uh, you mentioned even when we spoke the difference between the reality of, of business and investment and perhaps new generations of family office investors looking to more ethical, more impact investing strategies. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that um, in theory, these sound great, mm-hmm. but like communism, they don't work in practice, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> right. So can you touch on or delve into, into what you f- feel as the, sort of the difference between the woke culture, as you mentioned it, and the realities of business mm-hmm. and why, if, younger investors continue down this path of sort of, I don't like to call it as if ethical investing is the bad way forward, but talk talk to that point of, um, of when investors, new investors come into the market and see the realities as opposed to what their perceptions uh, are. 
um, I think what you're touching on there is really where one of my other big uh, crises points, and that's social cohesion. Mm -hmm. uh, if you don't have social cohesion, you can't have economic stability. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the things I am extremely concerned about at the moment, because I'm seeing a growing divergence between reality and the woke culture. Mm -hmm. uh, we can't mention woke now without mentioning uh, Lawrence Fox, of course. Um, Poor chap. Uh, for those international uh, what, uh, listeners to your podcast, Lawrence Fox is a British actor who appeared on Question Time, uh, which is a political programme on the BBC and where a panel of guests answer questions from a TV audience. And of course, being an actor, he was expected to follow the parameters of the woke culture. And in mm -hmm. fact, he did exactly the opposite mm -hmm. and opened up a complete can of worms, really. But interestingly... Yes, he had an awful lot of backlash from, uh, shall we say, the woke liberalist supporters, mm -hmm. but he also received an enormous amount of support. And the BBC has actually been inundated with calls for him to be invited back on mm -hmm. because he, he actually spoke very much on something that is current at the moment. And mm -hmm. this is this divergence where we are not allowed to say anything that doesn't fit the parameters of this very... Uh, shall we say, uh, politically correct, mm -hmm. uh, stifled mm -hmm. environment of the uh, of the identity politics. Mm -hmm. And very much the uh, sort of green evangelical, uh, evangelical uh, environmentalists are part, considered part and seen as part of that mm -hmm. uh, identity politics. Uh, not that I'm dishing, as you said, I'm not I'm not uh, saying anything against ethical investing. And I'll come on to that in in, in just a moment. But what I'm what I'm saying is that where you have a growing number of po member, uh, portion of the population mm -hmm. is angry and feels disenfranchised, feels cut off, that is a very dangerous situation. And it's not just in the UK. I mean, people talk about Brexit. They talk, and we'll talk probably about that later on. But people don't just talk about Brexit. But we're looking at, and uh, in the US, we see it with the support for Trump. And people are saying, oh, this is this is the reaction to it. it. That's not just the it's not just the UK and the US. We're seeing it in mainland Europe with the uh, growing uh, number of people who are very angry. You're seeing the Gilets jaunes in France, but also the actual information coming out from surveys is showing that a, gra a greater number of people are feeling dissatisfied uh, and cut off and not represented. And that is very worrying. Mm -hmm. But we we can we can go across look at look in Saudi Arabia. You have a very young population, um, with very high expectations. At the moment, things are relatively sound, mm -hmm. but it won't take much to tip them over. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you just cross over to in into Iran, mm -hmm. there a very small rise in in the cost of petrol mm -hmm. sent a huge number of people onto the streets mm -hmm. protesting in what is a very rigid. Uh, state, if you like. I mean, to go out and protest it on yeah. the streets in Iran, it, it's not exactly like protesting right. in Westminster. Right. It, you're taking your life in your hands, many would say. So for a small percentage rise in the cost of petrol, it sent an enormous amount of people onto the streets. So what I'm saying is social cohesion is, 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 is a concern um, for economic stability. Mm -hmm. Coming back to the UK, where I, uh, and, and globally, where I see the problem is that uh, in, for investment, is we've been very much concentrating on ESG, the environmental, mm -hmm. uh, social impact. And 
it's just been a bit of a green, green uh, whitewash, a greenwash. Uh, so we've all been, I mean, how many, I've been to so many conferences where, exactly. where you're sitting the there listening to the, you know, the latest, uh, the latest thing that's going to save the planet. And we were all sitting and everybody's sitting there clapping like seals. Um, unfortunately, this is very much separated from the reality of the people who are on extremely low incomes, mm -hmm. who are looking at their wage packets mm -hmm. and saying, I don't know if I'm going to be able to feed my family to the end of the week. Mm -hmm. That is a reality. And if we don't face that reality, we are going to face mm -hmm. serious social mm -hmm. upheaval. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a, career, a, a, clear, a clear concern. And I think... I'm not 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 attaching any more importance to Lawrence Fox, but his his the reaction to his, his appearance on Question Time uh, and what he's been saying in the press that is that is endemic of not just the U, the UK but right across the board. Mm -hmm. There is a whole uh, portion of society that is feeling that the grow the growing sort of woke culture has forgotten them yeah. and doesn't apply to them. And where it's concerning, so for example, another example, uh, in just looking at the US, uh, we have recently had the Oscars. Uh, viewing figures were quite appalling, uh, but most people are switching on just to see the dresses and uh, people arriving the and then best, they switch right? off because they don't want to be lectured anymore. Yeah. They've had enough of yeah, these yeah. people lecturing them. And go, go back to my example, you have somebody like Jane Fonda who's saying, all my diamonds and gold are, are ethically sourced. Well, good for you. Yes, great. Uh, uh, but how is that going to impact yeah. on your chap yeah. in, say, for example, Erie, yeah. uh, who is on minimum wage, um, worried about the factory closing, worried if he's even going to have a job mm. at the end of the week, and worried that his wage packet doesn't feed, or her wage packet, sorry to be sexist, mm -hmm. but doesn't feed the family. Yeah. They're not going to put the food on the table. That is a concern. They have feeling that they are totally forgotten and, and that the world has moved on and mm -hmm. left them behind. You cannot keep going with that sort of level of unrest mm -hmm. because it will spill over. But isn't... isn't And as we see the economic impact from other criteria, such as the coronavirus hitting uh, companies, and so we're going to see job losses, we're going to see bankruptcies... That is a, another thing that's going to stir up this populace that already feels left out. So I, I'm concerned. So when, when I look at investment now, mm -hmm. I'm seeing far more of a, of a move towards social impact yeah. and measurable social yeah. impact. So how is this investment going to improve the lives of those people I've been talking about, the people on minimum wage mm -hmm. who are worried about yeah. that, what's going to happen next week, not yeah. what's going to happen in 100 years with... Uh, whatever climate change mm -hmm. is going to happen, it's not impacting on them. But isn't this just an outcome of capitalism? Surely you have a situation where capital will be concentrated in the hands of a few and those who work will be left out. And because it's so global now, we see this just expanding everywhere. So these attempts by the liberal, the, the liberal side of society, I mean, what could they do apart from talking? You know, they, even if they donated their diamonds and jewelry to charity, I mean, apart from that, what, would, what, what else would you expect from them apart from just talk, you know? Uh, well, I would expect them to have a little bit more uh, of an idea of what reality of what most people, the reality of the lives of most people mm -hmm. um, don't, don't go around drip, mm -hmm. dripping in gold and diamonds. Mm -hmm. So I think to have, especially in the current economic climate where we are seeing uh, 
certain uh, unrest and certainly a growing number of the populace uh, very un un feeling uncertain about the future. Yeah. I think now is the time to for such people to maybe step back and start uh, being a little less uh, vocal in uh, in 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 uh, policies that really don't. One, they don't really know much about, I would say. And secondly, uh, that doesn't really impact. Yes, of course, climate change is going to impact on everybody on the planet. But at the same time, if you're worried about feeding your family to the end of the week, mm -hmm. uh, whether the whether the uh, the temperature of the of the planet is going to rise by four four degrees in the next fifty years is not it's really yeah, it's, it's not going to be the first in the well, forefront well, of your well. mind. And I think that's where the problem is. Yeah. Because what I'm saying is that uh, in I terms of uh, these people need to have a more of an idea of mm. reality. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's why the, the, there is this anger building. Yeah. Attack primary problems before you get to the ephemeral, uh, before you get to the you know philosophical. Uh, of course, people will say that the primary, climate change is a primary problem. But I think we need to attack it from, from the bottom up. Yeah. So from looking at how it's yeah. impacting on... Yeah. Uh, uh, on the on the poorest mm. in our communities, mm. and certainly they they need our support. Mm. If we jump to an industry which I'm sure you know well, and uh, that is the fashion industry, we we touched mm -hmm. on how luxury fashion is is being big time impacted by the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. But something I've spoken to fashion companies and the fashion industry about as well, and this is a two point a two part uh, question, and and uh, to dive into it, one. Thing that they're talking about the most is sustainable fashion, mm -hmm. right? That kind of reminds me when 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 oil companies want to be more sustainable by <laughs> by drilling oil. But the second part of that is, and you can speak on that. But something I find interesting, and you're speaking about geopolitical risk. cancel their contracts mm -hmm. and they see their stock price you know tumble recovering afterwards but tumbling in, in the first instance how much do you think these industries really know or the perceptions that they put forward as trying to be sustainable and uh having a more global outlook are they doing a good job or is it just talk in your opinion ah uh, right you're really putting me on the spot yeah. now um, because we see so many things of sustainable fashion this sustainable fashion that you know having a global well, again outlook, it's another green tick isn't it, it? Yeah. there is a certain amount of green greenwash uh, going on industry there? based on the fundamental business principles that they've employed until now won't really change because that's going to be that's going to see a big impact on their balance sheets it's going to see a big impact on their profits so why would they want to change as, as opposed to just well i think it's not a question of wanting to change it's a question of having to change because yes the world is becoming more aware that we have a limited amount of resources and we mm. have to uh, look to how we are producing uh, any goods that we use yeah. and how we use yeah. the resources that the planet has given us mm -hmm. and i totally understand that so industry is going to have to look yeah. at uh, ways of saving resources saving energy uh, and how we uh, what we use and how we produce it mm -hmm. so I don't think it's a question of them wanting to I think it's a question that they're gonna yeah. have to Is face because it. the consumer base wants it to happen more, and more it, than anything no yes exactly the consumer base uh, as we've seen is more aware and I think we have to caveat that slightly because as again as I said when we go down to uh, yes 
we can see it on the internet uh, and you see a lot of Twitter all about sustainable fashion. We've seen the BAFTAs, you know, or uh, wear, wear a dress that you've worn before or, or yeah. uh, whatever. Well, that's on a very different plane mm. to the person who's got five children and needs to buy them mm. something to wear to school. Mm. So people criticise, uh, you know, Tesco or whatever, whatever supermarket chain you wish to talk about uh, for having two pound T-shirts. But for some people, those are yeah. a lifesaver because you've got five children, you mm. need to get them to school, you need to have, mm. have something for them to wear. So we have to also caveat uh, that with, with, again, looking at how it's impacting on the poorest in our community. Mm -hmm. And I definitely think that, yes, industry will have to change. And we will also have to change our own perceptions of how we how we keep things, how mm -hmm. we mend things, mm -hmm. uh, um, and how we recycle. Mm -hmm. Definitely, that's going to change. And we're seeing it happening. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think we have to be very careful about impacting on the poorest in our community mm -hmm. because we simply don't have the margin at the moment for 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 uh, uh, allowing them time I think we really need to avoid so I think in terms of sustainability uh, yes there is a certain amount of greenwash um, yes uh, but I think long term, medium to long term, yes, we are going to see a definite shift mm -hmm. in production mm -hmm. and how we produce goods. Does that mean James Bond needs to now recycle his tuxedos? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'd be a bit difficult with the way yeah. he, but he uses up his clothes, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, I remember some of the films I've seen, you know, he practically shreds his yeah. suits, doesn't it? But yeah, I the think next scene is in a perfect crisp suit. Where did he get it from? No one <laughs> asks these questions. <laughs> well, actually, what you don't realise is that Money Penny is behind the corner exactly, sewing it up exactly. now, you know, to be sustainable. <laughs> uh, so we're going to have a sustainable uh, uh, dinner jacket from yeah. Bond, are we? Well, exactly. But what I'm saying is, we're actually going to reintroduce because sustainability in fashion actually is is something that was was present. In if we past. look back in the past, that's right. We were far more sustainable yeah. than we are now, yeah, right, right. and we really sort of from the coming in the seventies, eighties, we saw a much more of a move towards a throwaway society. Mm -hmm. So I think it's more a question of adapting, mm -hmm. and I think technology is going to help us with that as well. But on the other hand, people say you know the new generation are very much key, are very keen on sustainability and so forth. Yes, but they all want the new iPhone, don't yeah. they? You've seen them queuing Double for thing, the isn't it, right? yeah, um, isn't they that amazing? They sustainable and they buy the uh, newest thing. Exactly. So we have to caveat um, exactly how sustainable are we. Um, I won't even show you my own uh, mobile phones uh, <laughs> because you know, again, uh, or indeed my laptop. Uh, because I tend to be somebody who is very much a sustainable person because I don't yeah. like the latest trend. Uh, I will buy something if it works yeah. and I can prove that. And it has a Functional good fashion, right? Function rather than fashion, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but we're seeing certainly uh, um, a sort of a, a juxtaposition there, mm -hmm. really a, a clash, because yeah. although we're talking about sustainability, we're still seeing very much uh, a throwaway society uh -huh. still very much present. Yeah. Will it change? I think technology will help us change. I think we are going to see not so much of as a, as a moving back to keeping, say, your, the same phone for 20 years. Let's mm -hmm. take the, the whole iPhone. There. Mm -hmm. But what I think you'll see is that the new iPhones or the new any phone or whatever new technology comes out will in itself be more sustainable in the way it's produced. Mm -hmm. It'll be recyclable. It will be made you of recyclable so? material. Yes, I think we're moving in that way direction. I think that's where, where we're moving. 
in in the same way that we will in the same way we're seeing with recyclable clothing so even moving to production of using recycled recycled wool in our fabrics yeah. you know th these are the changes that we're going to see and technology yeah. will allow us to yeah. do it and will also bring the price point down yeah. because that's very important as well because as you are moving to this sustainable society mm -hmm. we have to make sure that the price point mm -hmm. is sustainable that's key, isn't it? Yeah. because that's the point you know it's very much uh, it's okay for um, well let's just say any designer like a Stella McCartney mm. a Stella McCartney trouser suit for example oh it's made of sustainable fabric and whatever that means yeah. well that's great but the price tag is yeah. rather out of the reach yeah. of most of your average working yeah. person yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so we need to get it down, and I think that that's where technology, and that's where the that is where the actual um, opportunities are to bring the whole argument of sustainability down to the common denominator, down to the person working on uh, on your uh, minimum wage. Mm -hmm. That person, if you're going to get them on board, mm -hmm. they need to be able to afford it. Mm. I think you're more optimistic than I am about these things. Well, I'm looking more long term. Yeah. You see, and I see projects coming in all the time. I'm often uh, I see the latest tech coming in front of me, and of course, you know, I, I I'm sometimes I get really rather tired of seeing you know the one one opportunity after another after another after another, and tech is almost. Uh, it's coming to the point where you, as soon as you've seen one idea, it's replaced by the next, the very next day. So it's almost as though we're speeding up too quickly now. But um, certainly, I think that's where the future lies. Definitely, that that is that is where the opportunities will be. Yeah, I think something that because when I speak to clients, uh, as I show you, do you bring your own personal life experience and your discipline in which you studied? You're almost mm -hmm. law, so you bring a very methodical look mm -hmm. into how things should be done, which is very valuable. My background it wasn't as stringent. My background is in anthropology. Mm -hmm. So I take it on a more how have cultures and societies developed throughout time. Mm -hmm. And it's always been quite localized. No one really needed to care about how the, how the world thought about something because mm -hmm. you lived in, in silos. You didn't live mm -hmm. in a global world. And I just don't think human beings are capable of coordinating globally for global solutions. It's very difficult to do that because I especially disagree. with something like, like democracy, where you have a new leader coming in every five years, that's changing strategy always. And people, as you mentioned in the past, they, they'll, they'll tweet something, uh, but they'll still do it. So there's no accountability there, as, as opposed to where you lived in smaller societies, there was, there was accountability. You have too many things to think about at the same time. And people, as you mentioned, they have their kids to put through school, they need to pay the bills and... I try to motivate them, to have them thinking globally when their work is or their life, you know, thought remit is getting the kids to school. Within 10 miles of the yeah, house. With, and then and then commuting to work and living in nice little sort of um, nice little uh, areas with your neighbors. And it, it, I think certain people can think global because it's their job, but the vast amount of society just wants to get on with life. So from what I've seen, it's difficult to energize a whole community of 7 billion people to go towards one direction. If you kind of if if you and I can't agree on what the best film is or what the best direction to get to this uh, podcast studio is, how can we coordinate the whole world or perhaps the key players in the world? And we see that with the UN, for example, the five key member states ne can never agree on anything. We've seen that with the EU. Yeah, well, <laughs> twenty-seven countries can never agree on anything. So how can we how can we agree globally when we can't agree amongst each other? I mean, where does that hopefulness come from? Apart from just technology, because you need human, uh, uh, you need. Uh, human motivation to use this technology in a good way and for a sustainable long-term period.
Well, first of all, it's coming from the ground up. We're seeing uh, the gener the new generations, uh, the younger generations. I hate to say younger generation because it's not uh, purely uh, the the uh, place of the young to dictate. But certainly, we are seeing uh, a far more of a globalist uh, reach uh, for people now, thanks to not just the internet but various uh, you know Twitter, whatever, Facebook. People have a much more global outlook. Um, yes, their lives tend to revolve around a small parameter, a small uh, district w mm. within their own uh, homeland, mm. as it were. But they do have an idea of where the impact that is something is having. And a good example of that is just, the, for example, the fair trade uh, movement. People, that really started off as, um, you know, the churchy people looking to worry about um, the coffee you're buying. Is it ethically sourced? Mm -hmm. And of course, now, if you go into most supermarkets, average products on the shelf, even even um, home home uh, you know, supermarkets own brand mm -hmm. will have a label on it to mm -hmm. say this is ethically sourced or this is fair trade. Mm -hmm. And that means something. People are looking for it. Mm -hmm. So that movement has grown from the ground up. So I, I have more, probably more faith in humanity than you do. <laughs> uh, but I certainly see that movements have changed. Um, but what I am concerned about is where the movement doesn't come from the ground. It's not coming from your working person. Yeah. Um, that is the concern. Yeah. The way you galvanize those people to care is first of all to under, to make sure that any sort of uh, uh, investment is not going to negatively impact mm -hmm. on them and then secondly to make sure that there is a positive impact mm -hmm. um, and that's where I go back to where the, my fam where family office investment mm -hmm. is going now we're much more looking at the social impact and measurable social mm -hmm. impact not just a tick so how do you measure that then like what well, this is the point it, it, or is it proprietary well this is the point it's, it's very difficult because yeah. at the moment we're, we're this is a new area for us me measuring social impact uh does it create so many jobs does it create uh how the long-term of uh impact of yeah. this is it going to uh, make energy cheaper for mm. for the baseline for people on the on the on the breadline. Mm. These are the sort of things that are prominent because when you're looking, it was much easier in the old days when all you had to measure was the financial gain because it was much yeah, exactly. easier. Measuring an impact on on a group of people on the, on their actual status yeah. is much more difficult yeah. because to quantify it is really it, to quantify it exactly is very difficult. Yeah. But certainly we are seeing a movement and that is very positive. Yeah. We are seeing far more, and that I, we have to say thank you to the anti-woke brigade for that, because we are seeing a great movement within the family office uh, strategy looking far more at social impact and measuring social impact, find, find, trying to find ways to measure social impact, to look at how we can improve uh, the, the 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 lot, should we say, of people who are we're never we're not looking at a communist regime thinking that we're we're all going to be equal. Mm -hmm. That that is, that is, that is, that is utopia, mm -hmm. and it's as you said, it, it sounds great in principle, but never works in practice. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we have to look at how we're going to impact and improve mm -hmm. the lot of these people, so that we can still have people who will have. They're not going to be multimillionaires. Mm -hmm. They're not going to own their own family office, but they can still have mm -hmm. job security. Mm -hmm. They could still feed their families and they don't have to have 
the ongoing worry every day of, are we going to make it to the end of the week? Or is our house going to be repossessed? Are we going to make the mortgage payments? These are growing concerns for a growing sector of society rather than a diminishing sector of society. That is a crucial worry. That is where we need to be looking at uh, our investments and mm -hmm. strategizing to alleviate that mm -hmm. those concerns. And it's not philanthropy. It is investment. Mm -hmm. So obviously there's going to be a financial return. But at the same time, the strategy has moved away from this sort of, how can I put it, not airy-fairy, but this sort of uh, greenwash, this sort of mm -hmm. green tick. And now I'm seeing far more that we have to register impact we have to show what is it what has this investment actually mm -hmm. achieved mm -hmm. what is it doing and not just at the beginning where we say it will do this but mm -hmm. all the way through the investment from mm -hmm. start to exit yeah. and then uh, a final analysis on exit has it achieved mm -hmm. the goal we said it would achieve in the first place mm -hmm. if not why not and we're seeing far more uh, interest in that information sure than we did say even e even six months ago. But two things to, to that point. I remember I was speaking to a family office uh, not too long ago, and they invest heavily. They have a very uh, ESG-focused investment strategy. Mm -hmm. But as you mentioned, it, ESG isn't homogenous yet. They haven't mm -hmm, found mm -hmm. you know common markers. So they said, let's say if we do invest in an in a, in, in an oil field, right, or in in oil. Some people may not consider that ethical investing, but that gives jobs to the people that wouldn't have jobs in the first place. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So they're trying to measure up uh, because not every, every when you wear something or when you, when you do anything, people are going to have different points of view. On Absolutely. You, especially when it comes time to something as contentious as as new as ESG investing, they're going to point their finger mm -hmm. or they're they're going to put up the flag of you know of a uh, of, of of change or leadership in this mm -hmm. field because it's very new. So they said. You know, if we invest in something, we try to find we have our own markers mm -hmm, because there's mm -hmm. not there's not a there's not a there's no generic agreed, agreed set mm -hmm. of principles. So that's what they do. And that seems to be a typical theme throughout, you know, investment Very much in so. general. But in that case, do you think it's important to have common standards or is it better to be more unique in how you perceive ESG to be? Well, family offices will always be, to a certain extent, unique. Yeah. To say that there aren't any generic uh, parameters is not not true. There are a number of where, whether we're looking at the United Nations. Mm -hmm. uh, but we there, need more than just generic parameters in this. But no, that's the starting point for family offices. Okay. And what we start off with, because as I said right at the beginning, a family office, you've seen one family office, you've seen one family office. Mm -hmm. Each one is unique to mm -hmm. the family it serves. Mm -hmm. And that's the whole beauty of the structure because it is a very unique structure that rec recognizes the strength of one particular family, mm -hmm. its ethos, what mm -hmm. it stands for, mm -hmm. and it takes that ethos and, and passes it down the generations. Mm -hmm. That's the whole beauty behind, and that's why it protects not just the family wealth, but mm -hmm. the family's ethos and structure um, through generational pass. But going back to the investment side of it, when you're looking at setting up a family office, the first thing you're, you're going to look at is setting up the charter, the family office charter. What does the family stand for? Yeah. So when we're looking at the investment side of it and we're looking at ESG and perhaps uh, the, the social impact of, it, of, of structuring the investment platform, we will look at worldwide parameters that are put out by the various organisations. But ultimately... It is the family, the family members that, and that will decide how they use those parameters and how 
they fit their own mm. take on what they mm. want to see, what they perceive as the world's problems, mm. what they want to do. Mm. And not only because, remember, we're not talking just about philanthropy here, we're talking about investment. Mm. So they are expecting a return. So they're all going to be looking at how their investment impacts, but also where they want it to impact. It's very unique mm. to their own yeah. their own, their own uh, take on society. So where one family may be, for example, uh, because of where their where their origins have come from. So you've seen I've seen uh, some of my clients of mine will be very keen to help uh, very poor areas in Africa because that's where their family originally originated from. Mm -hmm. So on projects that will involve bringing in uh, water, uh, uh, piped water to to a village, for example. That's their particular focus. Yeah. Um, and that's an investment strategy where we can see a definite social impact. 100%. But another family might be saying, well, the, I, my family are originally from the northeast where we've seen a great deal of um, industrial deprivation because mm -hmm. uh, factories have closed, mm -hmm. uh, mines have closed, there's no jobs. Um, so we want to, uh, our impact is going to be investing in that area mm -hmm. because we want to create jobs in that area mm -hmm. to regenerate mm -hmm. Um, societies in those particular towns. Mm -hmm. So it's very, and again, you see it in the States. The States, I've seen uh, American clients who are looking at projects where, again, they're looking at regenerating particular areas because it means something to that particular family. And that's what's unique about the family office structure. It's not, it's never going to follow one particular set of rules. Yes, there is a general parameter, and these uh, and um, there are various. Obviously, I'm not going to go into them now. There are there are various uh, rules and uh, for uh, and, and parameters for so e um, economic so and uh, social and governance and ESG and all mm -hmm. of that. But how they use those parameters and where they actually how they adapt them to to fit their own strategy mm -hmm. is completely unique to each family. Mm -hmm. And that's why um, family office is so uh, useful as a tool uh, for for social uh, impact because, as I said, each family is unique in its own right, and and therefore, and has a different way of dealing with different problems. And that and and that's where that's. But what we have seen, as I said before, is a move from just uh, financial impact. We are now looking at uh, certainly social, social impact, impact yeah. as one of the key key criteria for investment strategies um, and that's being driven certainly by uh, certainly by the newer generation coming in mm -hmm. um, and you're finding the most successful family offices are rather than being top down are being far more of the sort of linear structure where you have multi-generational input mm -hmm. because one of the things that family office I mean family offices have been around in some form for, for, for hundreds of years mm -hmm. Uh, and looking back at uh, one of the ways to to really explain a family office is it's a cust it's a it's a custodial idea. So you come from being, so you go from being an entrepreneur making your mark, making your business, generating that particular wealth. You go from being this sort of holder to being the custodian mm -hmm. for the future generations, and you have to change your mentality um, very much. So then, uh, and that way you mentor the yeah. next generation coming up yeah. uh, and with that's what's so that's what's so uh pleasing about family office mm -hmm. is you can see structuring for multi-generations mm -hmm. and the new generation coming in very much is looking at Im social impact as as a, as a key mm -hmm. driver mm -hmm. for investment strategy 
And that's their, their and e- but each, as I said, each family office, how they interpret that mm-hmm. is totally different. different. So we're going to segue to a different topic now. Oh. So when I, when, when I first, uh, and I see this on your LinkedIn all the time, so I don't, don't think I needed to even ask you in, in the questionnaire I sent you beforehand, but I said, what kinds of things, quirky things would you like us to mention about you? And you said your love of Aston Martin is something that <laughs> you'd love to have to talk about. And personally, myself, uh, I love cars. Uh, Aston Martin, obviously famous because of James Bond. But uh, what is the love for Aston Martin for you? Is it because of James Bond mostly or is it because of the history, the heritage or what is it about it? Um, well, I, I've been an Aston fan since I was since I was in the pram. Uh, <laughs> my father loved them. Um, I think one of the reasons he actually uh, got on so well with my husband is because my husband is a big fan of Aston Martins <laughs> as well. That's always good. Uh, right? so, so, but um, I don't think it's just uh, it's not really just the link with James Bond. Uh, important as that is for Aston, but yeah. uh, it, they are such beautiful cars and the whole history of their development. Mm. And if you if you go back to the origins of Aston Martin, you, you it's just well, tell really, us a little about it. But how well, did it start? I mean, just so, I'm just sort of talking about the the whole origins of the company, where you see people uh, with sort of a pencil behind their ear having an idea of oh, this mm. car. That's sort of very much a, a sort of a British can-do actor yeah. and, and uh, a way of thinking. And that, that really appeals to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving forward, obviously, I know why you've asked me about Aston Martin because you want you want me to to give you a, a, a sort of a, 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 a head preview of what cars you're going to see in the No, no Time to Die in the new Bond movie. Perhaps. I, well, no, you you're not going to get a scoop from me. Um, uh, I, I'm not going to reveal that. I mean, obviously, you're going to see the updated DB5 with okay. the updated machine guns, but right, we've yeah. already seen that in the clip yeah. that's been released. So we've moved forward from the yeah. DB5 in Goldfinger. Mm-hmm. Not that that wasn't a beautiful car. Of course it was. Of course um, but um, so I'm afraid I'm not going to give you any, any updates on that, um, except to say, of course, that the... Um, Steam tune is out today at four o'clock. Is it? Okay. Yes, so you'll be able to pick that up on my Twitter feed or indeed on Aston's Twitter feed. Very good. Uh, but if you're looking for an amazingly beautiful car, uh, look out for one of the 50 uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service DBS mm. olive greens that were made, uh, finished in olive green. Mm-hmm. They were made last year, okay. all sold out. I wish I'd bought one. Who buys them typically? Is it mostly sort of UK uh, car enthusiasts or is it more no. global market? Uh, Aston Martin really is a global brand and it's loved globally. Um, I just, uh, it, it's quite, uh, people think it's just, uh, just a Britwood. It is a British brand, but mm. it, 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 they think it's just a love here from sort of petrol heads here in the UK. Mm. Not at all. Go to Australia, go to Japan. Mm. Uh, people thought, oh, Aston Martin. Yes, great, mm. lovely. And there is a great following worldwide. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly, um, as, as I said, look out for one of those because there were only okay. 50 made and they're beautiful cars and 50 globally, yeah. which is a very small number. So you're really lucky if you see yeah. one. But one of the things I would like to mention about Aston is their intrepidness because they've moved into, with the launch of the DBX, they've moved into the SUV market. Mm. Now, Aston Martin, of course, you traditionally think of this sleek sports car, very much a luxury market, whereas the DBX is an SUV. And I have to say, I went to the pre-launch launch launch party and uh, I was sceptical and I'm an Aston fan through and through. I was sceptical. The the, um, guest I brought with me was Uh sceptical. And as we arrived in the room and they revealed the car by the curtain goes back and the car was revealed, there was an audible gasp. Wow. 
wow. in the air, from the from the audience from the from the guests and including myself we all went <gasps> because it was so beautiful okay. it really was so beautiful um and i have to congratulate uh, andy palmer and his team because they really have hit gold on that one uh, because we got to sit in it we got to feel it i do mm. feel sorry for the poor chap who had to polish it afterwards <laughs> because it, i mean really honestly the finger marks all over it was mm. people it was so tactile mm. you really wanted to go and hug mm. it it's so beautiful but what they have achieved there and that's quite canny is they've taken the fun and the beauty of a of a sports car and the practicality and capability of an suv mm. and put the two together and which people Google said it. couldn't be done what's it called i'll find it here it is an amazing car uh, and it's certainly one that the competition is going to have to sit up and take notice. Okay. Um, I mean, I've already got clients who are buying it, so it, it is one to watch. Do you get a commission one. every time they buy it from you? Have you got like a affiliate no, link No, no, not at all. Not at all. I'm quite happy to say that. I do not get commission from Aston. Um, I, I wouldn't mind if they pay yeah, me in cars, yeah, yeah. Uh, but unfortunately, no. Uh, but, uh, Perhaps I, they should feature you in the next Bond film somehow. Oh, yes. That would be a dream come true, I can imagine. <laughs> I'd love to be the next, uh, which I wouldn't mind Dri driving one of the Astons. Yeah. I tell you, I was in uh, was I was in Geneva a few years ago, mm -hmm. and whilst I was there, I uh, there was the Geneva Car Show that happens, I think, every year. Mm -hmm. So I Did thought I went down to it. I thought, let me go. I was going to book tickets online, but I booked them at the door, and it's sort of uh, like an XL, uh, as big mm -hmm. as the XL, full of just luxury cars. Mm -hmm. So you see all the you see the Lotus, you see the Lamborghinis, all the supercars, you see the Aston Martins, but mm -hmm. The main stage was taken up by Rolls Royce. It was a massive stage, mm -hmm. and I think they released their new Phantom. Mm -hmm, I, don't, mm -hmm. I can't remember. I can't remember what, what it was, but it was. Um, was that the year that Aston re re um, showed the Lagonda? You know, it was. What year was it? It was. Uh, I can't. Don't 20, don't don't worry about it. Twenty fifteen, I think it was. Twenty fifteen, twenty sixteen. So perhaps I don't mm -hmm. know. But I went there, and it was everyone was circling around the uh, Rolls Royce uh, dealership. And I walked in, uh, I walked to the door and uh, for some reason the woman said, would you like to take a closer look at the car? So I said, okay, walked in, had a chance to sit down. And it was the, it was the Rolls Royce with the, um, with the removable, the, the convertible. Volante, the, yeah, convertible. Yeah, the convertible. And they said, you can, you can mix and match colors. And if we mm -hmm. like the color, we can put it as a main range as well. And we mm -hmm. can name it after you. But sitting down in a car like that, it was beautiful. I remember, <laughs> I remember. I didn't have a chance to see many of the other cars, but that took up the stage. And I think for me, I have never really sat in an Aston Martin before, so I may be converted if uh, or when I do eventually sit in one. But when I was in the Rolls Royce, something about these cars, you know, mm -hmm. have, have a, I don't know. It's a, it's, it, there's a sense of separation from the world once you get into them. Very much so. I can't explain it, but uh, they they did a great job with that car. I, I have to say, when I when I sit in an, in, in 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 any of my Astons, I, I just it's another world. It's it's yeah. just such a wonderful feeling. But one thing I do say is that, and going back to the DBX, is that that ability and capability. So they've actually taken it, the DBX is not just a, a pretty car to mm -hmm. look at. It does have the capability of an SUV, um, and that's that's a very important point. So it they've launched into a new market, mm -hmm. and what a market that perhaps wasn't uh, people didn't think they would be able to break here. into yeah, yeah. and uh, it is an amazing car i, I would re it, yeah. i recommend people to go and have it have a get, have a look at it because it, it, is going to, it is going to make the competition sit up mm -hmm. and take note as i said so definitely when it comes to astons i i do love the dbx but obviously you know if i want if i uh, if i if i could have any aston that i wanted I'd, mm, maybe i go for a db4 zagato oh yeah Oh, divine car. Why is that? It, it, 
you can't I can't tell I mean I could go on for hours about various parts of it and how it's it's you know it's just a love affair yeah but uh, I mean I'm not going to bore you now with all uh, all the different dimensions yeah. of it and so forth but again beautiful car yeah but the new the DBS beautiful car so again Aston has has moved in is keeping developing and it's yeah. it's fresh it's new and that's what I really love about it it keeps its history but at the same time it's moving it forward right? it's innovating what do you think I, I remember one time when I after the the Geneva car show I think it was a few weeks after I came back from Geneva I uh, I thought to give Rolls-Royce a call to Aston if they would make it <laughs> would would they make this car electric could they put an electric engine into it mm-hmm. out of curiosity? And I called them up and they said uh, they were first confused. Like, why, why, why would you want to put an electric <laughs> motor into this? It sounds good. I said, could it be done? Would you guys be able to do it? I mean, if the price, I mean, would we obviously you're going to have to pay more for it, but would you, would you have you got the, the, cap- the capacity? She said, I need to find out. I'll give you a call back. I think a week later, <laughs> they must have tried to find out. And they said, unfortunately, we're not able to do that, but you can do that yourself if you like. But do you think it would be an attraction for sort of the more Tesla types who want electric cars for these cars to innovate into electric? Well, don't forget Aston is, is, a, is yeah, Aston is a, is very much uh, in in that market. So uh, fully just electric, because of, are they fully electric? Some of them, yes. But uh, Aston is not uh, is not just a, a luxury sports car maker. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of uh, yes, obviously, I still love. I'm a petrol head. I still love the petrol engine. I'm like not going to lie. The they I just, I, I, I think they're amazing cars. But they have, they, they are moving forward. They, they, they have looked at the electric. Uh, there is the electric option. So, don't. I mean, um, I'm not, not dishing petrol cars, and I'm not saying that electric is the only way forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and indeed, on, on, on that, on that note, I would say that um, one of the things uh, in terms of investment. Uh, there's been a lot of push for electric cars and so forth. And I think now we are moving into also looking at hydrogen. Korea's looking mm. at hydrogen. So I think what we will see in the future of investment uh, in terms of not just automotive, but in transport in general, we will see a mixture coming in. So it won't just be all electric. We will see hydrogen. We will see um, electric. We will see, we will see a mixture mm. coming in. Um, I, I don't think... Uh, we can we can just sort of uh, go down one route, and we have to be very careful by who is uh, as to who is pushing us down this one mm. route as well. Um, that's one of the things I have been advising that we need to look more closely mm. at all the options rather mm. than just uh, the one. So yes, it, can you get an electric Aston? Yes, and I'm sure. And Aston are also very good that um, you you can actually. Uh, ask them to do something uh, if you've got the money to yeah. back it up obviously sure. <laughs> um, pay for it uh, they are pretty flexible right, and yeah. their queue department is amazing yeah. uh, I mean I was at uh, the um, <laughs> I was at uh, the Festival of Speed where and I saw the little uh, Signet the mm. Aston Signet which is a, a tiny little thing I don't know if you know the Aston Signet with a V8 engine in mm. it going going up the hill and oh my lord it was amazing um unfortunately that is not a marketable car (laughs) that was just a one-off but it's a sort of it just gives you an idea oh the small yeah it looks like a it looks like a smart car yeah and and with a v8 engine in it you should have heard it roar so what what i'm saying is that there is that they're trying to innovate they're making they 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 do innovate yes obviously that is not i hasten to add that is not a a (laughs) car that you can go and order um i'm sure they would make you one if you asked but uh but um 
they are very innovative. Mm -hmm. and, and the DBX is a show of that. Yeah. They're moving into a different market. They're moving into the electric market. So they are innovative and um, very good. not just for James Bond. Yes, exactly. But James or, Bond is their biggest fan. I'm glad to see Bond driving an Aston. <laughs> definitely. He's a good brand ambassador for sure. Very much so, except for when he throws the cars into into the into rivers. But it just shows how durable they are. They come out fresh in the next scene, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. But actually one of the things that is amazing is that um they actually had to put. I, I don't know if you saw in Casino Royale, if you remember when mm -hmm. James Bond in in in, in his beautiful Aston, uh, instead of running over Vespa, who's been left in the road, mm -hmm. flips, the, flips car. the car. Yeah. They actually had to use a charge to make it flip because it's yeah. such a solid yeah, car. It's wow. such a, a sturdy car. And if you see the car after it had done all those flips, the roll cage is still practically is still intact. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's, uh, it just shows you the quality build on that car. Um, it's an amazing car. I hasten to add that I probably would have run over Vespa <laughs> rather than flip my car. <laughs> but there you go. But, you wonderful, know, hey, wonderful. I'm not Bond. There you go. We have about five minutes left. Mm -hmm. So I think what we should do is let the world let the world know, or at least our audience know, if they want to get into contact with you, Olivia, mm -hmm. what platforms do you use the most? What can they do to get into contact, either as a potential client Mm -hmm. Or to ask you more advice about the Aston Martin, or, <laughs> or about try to, about or the, unless they want to bribe you to find out what what new cars James Bond is going to be featured. Um, well, What's the best way? Is it LinkedIn? Is it Twitter? Is it what is it? And we didn't even get to talk about Brexit. We didn't. We didn't. But uh, if oh. you want to, if you want to give us a few words, because you were uh, you're very uh, very much a fan of Brexit. Um, well, we've now left, yeah. uh, so we no longer talk about Brexit because we've Brexited. You Brexited it, that's so right. So we've left, we're now in the transition period. So yes, I do have a positive outlook. Um, uh, um, uh, funny enough, the, the the noise coming out, especially from Monsieur Barnier this week, mm -hmm. um, they, they are so concerned about the UK being uh, diverging and, and being deregulated from the EU. And MEPs in Brussels have also mm. stated that the UK must align with EU regulations on tax, the environment, yeah. um, all sorts of all sorts of different policies. That shows me that they really didn't understand what Brexit was all about in the mm. first place. Um, but that's another matter. And also, of course, the contributions. The um, UK leaving has left a big hole. Mm. Uh, where are the contributions going to to fall? Analysis has shown that it's going to fall on five countries in particular, mm -hmm. Austria, Sweden, the Netherlands, Germany and Denmark. Germany not alone. France? Not France, no. Oh, France uh, this is, is the analysis that's come out. It may shift, but mm -hmm. the, the, the initial analysis shows that those are the five countries that are going to have to pay the... The, the biggest most, yeah. amount in terms to of make up for in, the deficit. in terms of in terms of yes how their contributions are going to jump up um germany some of them are going to see the contributions double mm. uh, germany won't see it double but they will see an increase from uh, 16 billion euros to mm -hmm. 26 billion euros mm -hmm. now recall when i said that germany's going into a technical recession mm -hmm. That's not going to be very good. Mm. Uh, uh, it's not going to be a vote winner, is it? Also. Um, but moving forward into uh, post-Brexit treaties, uh, trade treaties, uh, where we where we go from here, mm -hmm. I think it's a very positive outlook. And one of the things that I would like to mention is that a number of businesses were fixated with the sort of Westminster Punch and Judy show that we mm. had leading up to this exit. Mm. Whereas they didn't see the bigger picture. They didn't look at things like demographic changes mm -hmm. in, um, in in the EU. They didn't look at, for example, falling populations. Italy's population is falling off a cliff. Knowledge clusters. London is a very big knowledge cluster. Um, 
the positioning of knowledge clusters in the EU, in mm. the EU as mm. we stand. London is a very big uh, knowledge cluster. We don't see so many within the EU. The death of verticals. Uh, Digitalization is disrupting businesses. Mm -hmm. Integrated processes are causing um, uh, causing the way we do business to change, mm -hmm. uh, not only in transport, but life sciences, for mm -hmm. example. So, for example, in life sciences, we're moving from concentrating on curing diseases to preventing diseases. Right, yeah. So the way we do business is changing. There's disruption. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the bigger picture, which many businesses didn't focus on because mm -hmm. they focused too much on the Brexit politics. Mm -hmm. The problem there is, and where where this ties in, the EU is very much, in my opinion, an organisation that is from the 1940s mm -hmm. that hasn't moved forward and, and can't move. It's like the huge oil tanker. Mm -hmm. It takes hours for it to, to turn. Shift, move, like the to shift, whereas we're now onto the nice speedboat where mm -hmm. we can move much faster okay. because we're only looking at our own yeah. uh, countries' requirements mm -hmm. rather than at 27 countries. Yeah. So it's... It, and also the way we be, we we do business, the mm -hmm. way we can actually negotiate trade detail uh, trade treaties, is much more fluid now mm -hmm. because there's only uh, only us negotiating. Yeah. We're not having to ask twenty seven other countries. So this is the problem with the EU going to is going to face going forward that we don't have to. Mm -hmm. And one of the actual uh, just I know we're running out of time, yeah. but one of the things I did want to mention is that when I was discussing with um, colleagues across the globe, so Canada, US, Japan, uh, for example, Australia, they were saying that when, are they, when, when they were with countries negotiating with the EU for trade deals, one of the benefits that they looked at was the fact that the UK was part of the EU, mm -hmm. and so therefore they would have access to UK markets. Certainly Canada, we're a very big, the UK is a very big market for Canadian goods. Now that we've left, suddenly a trade deal with the EU doesn't seem such a great idea mm -hmm. because without that UK Lost market money. access. Yeah, That's a leaders. good news for us. So we need to get in there. And just on that final note, yeah. positivity, sure. I would like to, to see us have trade uh, to certainly move now before, uh, as you see, the US is moving to up uh, to change the ceilings. They want to renegotiate, uh, they increase the ceilings on tariffs um, because it uh, wants to renegotiate its, its uh, um, relationship with uh, fellow mm -hmm. WTO members. We need to be in there now discussing mm -hmm. a trade deal with the US, but also with countries such as Australia. Australia is one of our oldest allies. It's a friend of ours. They've had a rough time, not just with the bushfires, but now with coronavirus mm -hmm. has really hit their economy. Mm -hmm. This is a time when we need to step up to the plate. We can get a trade deal done and start trading with countries that probably thought that we'd forgotten them. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly through our membership of the European Union, a lot of countries, certainly with, the, with, with, with for example, the Commonwealth, thought that they had been thrown by the wayside. And we need to, to step up and say, no, that's yeah. not the case. Um, we're out here. We're yeah. trading. It's a, re a refreshed Britain, hopefully, after all this. Yes, absolutely. Very good. Very good. And I remember when I put this up on, uh, on LinkedIn, when I put up your... Uh, your appearance with the shadow, with the silhouette. We had Mark Asherson. He 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 uh, he's a he's a friend of yours and mm -hmm. a colleague of mine also. Since he guessed correctly, we're going to give him a shout out. <laughs> Hello to Mark. Would you like to say anything anything to Mark over the podcast? Um, 
Hi. Have you met him uh, uh, recently? I haven't met. I haven't, no. I haven't seen him recently. No. I, got, I, I. How did you guess from my silhouette? Gosh, I don't that's know. good. He's very good. He's very good at that. He probably saw my my my, my rugby player nose. Really. <laughs> well, he saw probably the, uh, the 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 descriptions of you. Ah. Oh, but so. uh, hopefully we'll have a chance to. Uh, so he, get he in might... touch, Mark. And if you want to get in touch with me, and, I, yeah, and, exactly. and not just Mark, yeah. no, no offense, Mark, but anybody wants to have further discussions, I'm. Uh, you. I've got a. Tw- yeah. I've got Twitter feed. I'm on Facebook. What's your Twitter handle? Uh, uh, Olivia Crossborder. Okay. Uh, you can. I'm on Facebook as well. You can email me at Harrison Clark Rickabees, uh, Ocooper at HCR. Uh, so. LinkedIn as well. You're very active on LinkedIn. I am on LinkedIn, of course. Yeah. You can contact me on LinkedIn. Very good. Uh, don't expect a reply straight away, please, because <laughs> some people are saying you haven't replied to me, and yeah. Yeah, I find that they emailed me exactly ten minutes ago. Yeah, I'm thinking, yeah, yeah. Mm, I yes, I, I do actually have other have other concerns yeah. as well but do get in touch and do I would like to hear people's comments and, and start a, and start a discussion on For this sure. this is very interesting this is going to go out soon we're going to edit all these up as well we're going to mm-hmm. deliver it all in one go so we'll update everyone in due course but thank you so much as our first guest of 2020 <laughs> thank, you. thank you so thank much thank you Klinsman. wonderful